Hello, kiddies. So, you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. <laughs> Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Pledge yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan? <laughs> Blind Story Studios, giving story a voice. Hello, listener. Welcome to the Gaslight Collective. I am the Collector. Come along now. Let me show you my collection of audio delights. Yes, go on, pick one. All are sure to tickle your fancy in one way or another. Ah, that's a good one you've chosen. The Wicked Library. Hmm, with our good friend, the Librarian. Let's begin. We will make you believe. The Wicked Library is not intended for sensitive listeners. If you're a sensitive listener, Listen very closely. Are you ready? Of course you are, sweetheart. Stop listening to the bloody show! You're sensitive! This could be very harmful to your mental capacity! <laughs> Why are you still listening? I just said it wasn't intended for you! You're not gonna have fun here! You're gonna have nightmares! And we, your kecks, yes you will! <laughs> Listen at discretion is advised. Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs>
Hello, and welcome to episode number 724 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and today we have three stories for you. Two from season five, one from deep back in season two. And we wanted to go back a little bit and pull some of the ones out of the archive because a lot of you have asked, why doesn't Dan have any stories on the Wicked Library? Well, I did. Uh, I've had a couple, actually. One in season six, I believe. And this one that I'm going to share today from season five that I actually wrote as a gift for my good friend, Cynthia Lohman, who is also the executive producer of the show. This show has grown tremendously in the last two seasons. So there are probably plenty of you who have not heard seasons one through five. So I wanted to dig back in and let you guys see what is in the archives. If you're on the fence about supporting us on Patreon, you want to know, hey, what do I get with that? You do get an ad-free show, and you also get access to the archives, including the three stories you're going to hear today. Obviously, all the stories you're going to hear today are narrated by Nelson W. Piles, because he created the show. And before I took over in season six, he was the only narrator. Now, I will warn you, the third story maybe possibly could offend you. It is a little sacrilegious. Okay, more than a little. But it is a wicked story, and that's the rule on the show. Is it good, and is it wicked? So, even if you skip the third story, you do have two stories this week. And we'll go ahead and move on to the first one. Gray and Red. Written by Daniel Foytek. That's me. Gray and Red The heavyset cop tapped his finger on the photo of the dead woman without looking up. Tell me again. Gray's hand shook as he brought the sputtering match to the tip of the cigarette dangling from his lips. He pulled the flame into the tobacco and tossed the match into the ashtray, barely making the rim. The tip of the cigarette flared bright red for a moment. Then he blew the pale cloud out explosively. His voice fluttered as he spoke. I, I... I told you twice already. The other cop, the wiry one with the intense blue eyes, slammed his hand down on the cold aluminum table. Then tell us a third time! Gray jumped at the sound and felt the cuffs bite into his wrists. The stout cop turned his head to the thin one. Halts, he said, his voice even in calm. Why don't you go get me another cup of coffee? Holtz glared at his partner. He grabbed the cup, stood, then turned for the door. Oh, and why don't you get Mr. Gray here another cherry soda? He said with a nod at the man on the other side of the interrogation table. Fuck you, Bomb. Bomb turned to face Holtz. What was that? Nothing. A coffee and a cherry soda coming right up. He stepped out and slammed the door behind him, making Gray jump again. Gray's eyes darted around the room and he took another long drag on the cigarette. He looked down at his fingers as he tapped the cigarette into the ashtray and shivered. There was still blood deep in the creases of his knuckles and caked against his cuticles. His eyes fell on the picture on the table again, and the mangled body of the old woman in it. Baum followed his gaze but said nothing. There was something about Gray's story that rang true with him, which, his gut told him, meant the guy was either nuts or telling the truth. 
He opened the folder in front of him again and flipped through the photos. They were horrifying. Blood in pools, splatters, smears, and a fine mist of crimson that covered literally everything in the room. It was the worst Baum had ever seen. Something he never thought would be possible after the triple homicide he had worked on last month. He flipped through the 8x10s quickly until he found the one with the partial face of a young woman on the night table. That was the worst one. The one that made him understand Holton's rage. It was exactly what it looked like. A face, peeled from the skull then tossed casually aside as if it was simply a mask. There were other chunks of torn away flesh on the floor, some in the bed, but the bulk of the skin and dark, wiry hair had been piled up in the shower of the adjoining bathroom. He flipped to the photos of Gray, the way he looked when they found him in the bed at the scene of the crime, rocking back and forth and muttering to himself in what one of the first responders reported was maybe Austrian or something, or maybe German. The last several photos showed Gray when they brought him in and processed him. There were two photos for each layer of blood-soaked clothing they removed, one of the man and one of each item laid out flat on a clean white table before it was folded and slipped into an evidence bag. The last photo was the most disturbing. It was a close-up of Gray's mouth with his teeth bared and the fleshy material caught between them. That had changed things. They induced vomiting, and the priority became collecting and testing the material. Baum refused to call it what he already knew it was, from between Gray's teeth and stomach. The door opened and one of the unis in the hall held it as Holtz entered with a coffee in each hand. He set one in front of Baum, then reached into his pocket and pulled out the soda, opened it, and poured it into the paper cup in front of Gray. He would have felt better if he could have spit in the cup first, like he had before, but he'd just have to content himself with the fact that Gray had already swallowed a good share of it in the last cup. So, what did you get out of this twisted old fuck while I was playing waitress? Nothing. I was waiting for you. Hulse grunted and sat down. Talk, he said simply to Gray. Gray looked down at the table, sighed, and told his story one more time. I wasn't there for any other reason than to see the bottom of my glass, but the bartender was making sure that wasn't going to happen anytime soon. Zivon was crooning from the juke about London Town. Two bikers were making the balls clack and roll behind me and I was watching the talking heads on the tube and working my way through a pack of reds when she came in. Now I didn't see her come in, but I sure as hell smelled her. You might think you couldn't smell much in a place like that, but you'd be wrong. Dive bars like the Wood Street Tavern are full of harsh smells, but that's not really a problem for someone like me. I see smells. Synesthesia, I think they call it. Anyway, it makes it easier to sort through the din. I've been going to the woods for a long time, so I'm used to the greens and blues of sweat and stale vomit. And the more pungent, sickly yellow of too many men with poor aim. Those smells, you tune out. They become background noise. She, on the other hand was the bright crimson of baked apples and cinnamon, the fiery red of early summer strawberries, sweet and still warm from the sun. The men at the pool table noticed too. Their banter ceased and the click and rattle of the balls became silent. The final note of the excitable boy's ballad faded away and it was 
deeply silent for a moment before Nugent came on and started to sing about a bear with an unlikely first name. I was snuffing out the ember of another cigarette when I sensed her next to me. Fuzzy, pink, warmth flowed from her as she leaned forward and responded to the bartender in a voice that was somehow just as sweet as it was sultry, challenging. I'll have a glass of cab. The bartender managed to look ashamed when he admitted that they didn't have any. Pity, she said. I was in the mood for... She paused and looked at me, letting her eyes flow downward and then back up to mine. Meat. And a good Cabernet is always the perfect accompaniment. Sorry, miss, the bartender said as he refilled my glass. We don't get much call for it here. I do have an old bottle of Merlot under the bar if you'd like that. I'm not sure if it's actually any good. She let her eyes drift from mine and favored him with a smile that probably got her anything she wanted when she used it. That's fine, she said. If it's red, I can usually find something to like about it. He walked to the end of the bar and started digging for the bottle, so she sat in the stool next to me and pointed at my pack of reds. Do you mind? I took a swallow of my bourbon and nodded my consent. She grinned, knocked one from the pack, and helped herself to my lighter. She drew in deep and blew out a long breath in satisfaction. Thanks, I normally don't smoke, but it's been a rough day. She looked at the glowing tip and then up at me. I needed this. I took another swallow of bourbon and helped myself to a smoke as well. She'd been toying with my lighter, and with a flick, she had the flame ready for me. I leaned in and drew the fire, watching her eyes capture its reflection and make it dance. Thanks, I said. I pointed to myself as the bartender set a glass full of the deep red liquid in front of her. He put a small paper napkin down before he set it on the pitted and cigarette-scarred surface. It was a little like trying to put lipstick on a pig, I thought. She giggled, reached for the glass, and gave me a little wink. Good one. I was confused for a moment. I didn't think I had said that out loud, but I looked at the glass in front of me. What did this make? Eight? Nine? I scratched the stubble on my chin. I guess I might have said it out loud after all. For the moment, she was enthralled with the wine and her cigarette, so I took a moment to look her over. The dusty, smeared windows of the dive gave her a halo and made her auburn hair burn like a forest set afire. She was dressed simply, but everything she wore seemed to be tailor-made for her and fit perfectly. The result was a casual outfit that looked almost elegant on her. She wasn't petite, but she wasn't large either. Just tall enough to command attention and small enough to leave no doubt as to the fact that she was a woman. Of course, I didn't fail to notice a couple of very obvious signs that would have removed any question for even a nearly blind eunuch. She felt my gaze, tipped her head to look at me and winked. Then she took another sip from her glass with a shiver and a smile. Excuse me, she said to the bartender. Can I see the bottle? He nodded and picked it up from the back bar where he had set it to, upon a request. Let it breathe for a few minutes. He handed it to her and she looked it over and toyed with the label with her fingernail before handing it back. Thanks. It's actually not bad at all. I might take the bottle when I'm ready to leave. If you'll sell it to me, of course. The smile came back, and when I saw the sheepish way he looked at her, I knew he was going to give it to her. One of the bikers came up beside her, carrying an empty pitcher and set it on the bar. He looked her over even more openly than I had as the bartender took the pitcher to refill it. 
She looked at him coldly and turned back to me. Hey there, Ginger Snap, he said, undeterred. She took another sip of her wine and said, I'm sorry, I'm with someone. Who, that old fart? He said with a nod to me. Normally, that would have been when things got very bad for the young buck. But I was trying not to be the bad guy anymore, so I let it pass. She chuckled and took another sip of her wine without looking at him. You're a child compared to him. Run along and play with your friend now, little boy. The bartender set the filled pitcher down on the bar, told him to go play some more pool on the house, and set a roll of quarters in front of him. He either didn't hear or didn't care, because he ignored the bartender, grabbed the young lady by the shoulder, and spun her to face him. I don't know who the fuck you think you are, bitch, but nobody talks to me like that. I felt the hair on the back of my neck prickle, and I started to get up, but the lady raised her hand before I could do it. She spoke in a voice so low, I was sure I was the only one who heard. I'll deal with this one. Such an offensive word, she said to voice much louder. Oh, one I've never been fond of at all. She stood then and took a single step forward, forcing the biker to take one back. Then she leaned in close and whispered something in his ear I couldn't quite make out. She stepped back and he stared at her for a moment. The blood drained from his face faster than I've ever seen, and he backed away, slowly. Then he turned and walked briskly out of the door. His fellow rider looked at us for a moment, then turned and jogged out after his friend. She turned back to her wine and took a long swallow, draining the glass. The bartender took her glass and refilled it, and she favored him with that smile again. I feel bad that they left without paying their tab, so I'll tell you a small secret. You see the funny old saint with the key there on the label? He's called Peter, or The Rock, not the former wrestler. And also, Petrus, if you parle Francais. This bottle is from 1998. Before you open it for me, it was worth about $1,500, which is what I'm going to give you for the rest of the bottle. My friend will have a glass, too. I protested that a fancy bottle of wine would be lost on me, but she held her hand up again. A fine wine like this is meant to be savored and shared. You must have some with me. I agreed. So we sat in an empty dive bar that Saturday afternoon and shared a bottle of wine. Hulls interrupted. Listen, you twisted old fuck, I don't give two shits what you did in the bar with some nameless bimbo before you gutted those people. I want to know what you did Saturday night and why. Gray looked at Hulls, irritated that the connection was lost on the inept cop. He spoke slowly, as if to a child. Well, officer, if you keep asking me to retell my story, I thought I should start earlier in the timeline. The woman I was with at the bar, she is one of the women you're accusing me of murdering. Gray picked up and sniffed at the cup of red soda. Seeming satisfied, he then took a long swallow and looked directly at Holtz. I thank you for the soda. This one seems a little different than the last one you brought me. Holes slammed his fist down on the table, and Gray squinted his eyes and bared his teeth at him. Did you see that? The old fucker just looked at me like he wanted to bite me. Bomb looked up and set down his pen. What? I was taking notes, but no, I didn't see Mr. Gray do anything. He's playing us. The whole scared old man act is just that. He killed those women and ate them. We don't know that. Fine. Let him keep talking. I got nothing better to do. Baum looked at his partner and shook his head. 
then turned back to the old man. Go on, Mr. Gray. I'll appreciate your attempts to be as detailed as possible. We left the bar, her seeming a little tipsy and me just past feeling comfortable enough to get behind the wheel, so we called a cab and headed back to her place, or, more accurately, the place she was living. I have to warn you, she said, her speech slightly slurred and her eyes looking just a bit drowsy. The lady I'm taking care of is a little... off. I glanced at her and tilted my head inquisitively. She chuckled and the afternoon sun caught her in her eyes and made them sparkle with a golden light. I'm a live-in caretaker for an older woman. I have my own room and everything, but it's her home. Anyway, she's a bit senile. She sometimes thinks I'm her daughter, other times her sister, but most of the time she calls me Blanchette. I think that's her granddaughter. I'm not sure who she'll think you are, but it's just easier if you play along. I nodded and watched as she ran her hand along my thigh, the bright, glossy red of her fingernails gliding over the dark gray of my jeans. She giggled as I reached down and stayed her hand from going further. We arrived at the curb in front of the house and I paid the driver, then helped her out of the cab. She dug into her front pocket, pulled out a small set of keys, and unlocked the door. I could hear the TV as soon as we entered. The buzz and distortion of an old set cranked up far too loud. At first, I thought it was one of the Spanish channels, but once the actress started speaking, I realized it was an old Carol Burnett show episode. Come on, my companion said. I need to check on her before we can have some time to ourselves. She grinned wide, slipped her hand into mine, and led me down the long hallway to the room with the blaring TV. Even before we got to the room, my nose was overcome by the dull brown of age and pale gray impending death. It's a smell we all know. Some of us can smell it more strongly than others, but there in that small house, the odor was concentrated and far too strong. We entered the room and I could tell what had once been a dated old living room had been transformed into a makeshift hospice room. The clinical whites and cold stainless steel of the machines and equipment looked very out of place next to the faded green furniture and muted ochre carpet. The old woman lay propped up in a hospital-style bed, with plastic tubing running to her nose. She was wiry and looked frail and weak, but her eyes were alert and she looked at me over slowly. She turned to my companion and smiled in that sweet way only little old ladies can. Hello, Blanchette. Who's your friend, dear? My new friend winked at me and turned back to the old woman. Just a friend I met earlier. I brought him by so you could meet him. I think you'll like him. The woman turned to me, tilted her head back like she was scenting the air and laughed until it turned into a coughing fit. The young woman, Blanchette, to her for the moment, moved to her bedside quickly and tended to her, comforting her, then giving her a sip of water and wiping her mouth. I'm sorry, young one, the old woman said to me. I was thinking how much I love the smell of your musk, how much it reminded me of my husband, God rest his soul. The comment seemed odd, but I've been around a lot of old folks. It seems they have a tendency to lose their internal editor as they get close to the end, so I shrugged it off and just smiled back at her. The old woman squinted at me, then turned to her caretaker. Ah, he's got some fine teeth, dear. You can always tell a good man by the way he cares for his teeth. 
Blanchett grinned and winked at me. Yes, there's nothing like a little nibble from a man with nice teeth, she said. The older woman cackled and rubbed her hands together. Mmm, yes. Better to nibble on him instead, I think. I raised an eyebrow and found an invisible piece of lint to pick at on my shirt. As I busied myself with this fictional task, I could feel the old woman's eyes on me and sense the amusement coming from her. Paranoia began to bloom, and with it came the crazy sensation that I was being toyed with, that things were not as they seemed. Before I could respond, she went on, You're certainly a big one, aren't you? I shrugged and smiled and caught Blanchette's eyes drift below my belt. Sure is. All the better to fuck you with, I suppose, the old woman said, leaning forward and tossing her bedclothes aside. Too bad. And here, her voice dropped to a low growl. What I need from him will kill him before you get the chance. The old woman crouched on the bed and began to tear at her flesh, pulling it off in large, bloody chunks. It stretched and shrugged, and the rest of her skin fell away, revealing thick fur matted with blood. She stared at me with golden, lupine eyes and shook like a dog fresh from the bath, covering me and the walls with a thick spattering of blood and tiny chunks of flesh. I cursed myself for being led into a trap. I backed away from the ancient wolf and turned to run. But the other one, Blanchette, was there, blocking my way. She had stripped off her clothes and stood before me nude. Beautiful. Deadly. She grinned and winked, then crossed her arms over her chest and dug her fingernails deep into her shoulders. Deep red blood poured from the wounds as she tore her skin to ribbons and shrugged out of it in a single motion. She smiled at me, then tore off her face and tossed it on the nightstand. Surprise. She shook herself and the blood flew again. Her coat was tawny and glittered with remaining droplets of blood. Beautiful. Deadly. As she began to circle closer, I chastised myself again. I should have known what she was when I first saw her. The clues were there, but the disguise was good. And it had been a long time. Not to mention I didn't think there were any of us left. I closed my eyes and prepared. The deep primal call I had ignored for so long rose to my ears and I let it wash over me, heightening my senses and reflexes. When she came at me, I was ready. I spun quickly and tossed her over my shoulder into the old one. They tumbled together and crashed into the wall, splintering plaster. Before they could untangle themselves from one another, I leapt on them and dug my teeth into the first piece of flesh I found. The old one howled in pain and frustration, and I felt the young one swipe at me with a powerful paw, knocking me back into the brick wall hard enough to knock the wind out of me. When I looked up, they were both crouching in front of me, calculating, looking for an opening. My face was hanging by a thread, so I tore it the rest of the way off and stretched to my full height. Clothing and skin tore and hung from me, and the females took a step back. Why are you doing this? I shouted at them. My little sister needs your heart, whelp, Blanchette said. She's old and your heart will make her young again. I considered her words. I'd heard the stories before, that if you consumed the heart of a young one you could steal their youth and vitality, but I'd never believed it to be true. Oh, it's true enough, Pop, the old one said. 
Despite how we look now, I'm actually a season younger than Blanchette. We've both done this many times. That's abhorrent, I said. To kill your own? It's wrong. It's human. You were hard to find. If I had found you sooner, we might have had time for some fun together. But my little sister has little time left. We really must have your heart. Now, Blanchette said and charged at me. It was over quickly. I grabbed her as she came at me and snapped her neck, then tossed her against the wall. Leave, I said to her sister. Don't make me kill you too. She glared at me, but she knew she was too weak to be a match for me. She growled and ran past me, down the hallway, and out into the street. I found my face, then went down the hall and found the bathroom and shower. I shed the rest of my skin, then climbed into the bed to lay down and regrow a new layer of flesh. I was awoken by the warm spray of something hot and red and heard the sound of tearing flesh, cracking bone, and the unmistakable sound of gnawing. I sat up, and the old one was there, tearing into the body of Blanchette splattering me and everything in the room with blood and flesh as she cast aside all but the part she needed. She began eating her sister's heart out of her chest. I cried out in anger and horror, and she turned and growled at me, her lips peeled back from her great teeth in warning. Watching her cannibalize the heart of her own sister made me see red, and, and I jumped from the bed and grabbed the first thing I could find, an iron fireplace poker. I ran at her and swung at her head, hard. She was faster than me, though. I was still weak from the change, and she knew I was no threat. She leapt at me, knocking me back onto the bed, and pinned me down before I knew what was happening. She brought her muzzle close to my face and growled, I may see you again, young one. Then, she licked my face, turned tail, and loped from the room, dragging the body of her sister behind her. That's bullshit. All of it, Hull said. Baum scratched the back of his head with his pen. He certainly seems to believe it. It's because he's a fucking nutcase. I mean, where was the body of the other one? I told you she took her sister when she left the second time, Gray said. Hulls rolled his eyes. Listen, you twisted son of a bitch. All I want to know is what you did with the bodies after you skinned those women. Like I told you, Gray said, stubbing out a cigarette. There were no bodies. The skin was just a disguise. I've had about enough of this horse shit. I say, we'll let the fucking guys in white take him and see if the shrinks can get anything out of him. Bob made a few more notes, then looked up at Gray. Thanks for your statement, Mr. Gray. I'm sure we'll be talking again, but for now, we're going to call it a night. A couple of orderlies are waiting outside. They'll be in shortly to take you someplace for the rest of the night. Both men stood and left the room, leaving Gray at the table with one last cigarette. Baum was just getting his desk organized the next morning and wolfing down a bowl of heat need oatmeal and honey. Holes threw the file on the desk in front of him and shook his head. I still think it's bullshit. I'm not saying it's not, Baum said around a mouthful of his breakfast. I'm just calling it odd. Call it what you want. I'm a little too old for fairy tales. Baum picked up the file and turned to the page he wanted. 
DNA from his teeth and stomach were identified as some sort of wild canid of unknown origin. He flipped the pages. Skin we found piled in the shower belonged to a male, meaning it can't possibly have belonged to either woman. Yeah, so all that tells me is that the asshole killed a third victim. Maybe he's an equal opportunity cannibal. Well, we could ask him, but he escaped from a moving vehicle during the transfer last night. A vehicle that was reportedly going over 75 miles an hour at the time. Whatever. Hole stood and grabbed his coffee. Where are you going? I got lunch with that nurse we interviewed this morning, the one who was riding shotgun in the van, Hull said, when your werewolf jumped out. Bomb nodded, remembering her. The redhead? That's the one. I like her. She's the first woman to ask me out for a bite in a long time. Where do you think you're going? There's more story to come! <laughs> Don't you want us to keep the lights on? <laughs> Our second tale this week comes from way back in Season 2, a great story called Comp Time, written by Rebecca Snow. Comp Time As of now, all requests for overtime are denied, Ms. Morgan Jones said. Pounding her palm on the lacquered conference table, she left behind a hand-shaped smear. No more frivolous waste. Our bottom line is too high and we need to bring costs down. She dropped into the mesh-backed office chair and stared at her gathered employees. You all need to work harder while you're on the clock so you can finish your daily tasks. No more breaks to show your neighbor the latest trending YouTube video. I don't care if the new monitors are more lifelike looking than out of picture window. No catching up at the water cooler for 20 minutes on Monday about weekend dalliances. This is not a reality show, people. And no more pawning your work on someone who's already done his own. You pull your own weight, or I'll find someone who will. She peered over the top of her black-rimmed spectacles, making eye contact with each of her workers in turn. Understand? Slow nods peppered the room. A whispered chorus of yes-ma'ams slithered from the dedicated staff. Good, Miss Morgan Jones said. She pushed herself up from the swiveling chair and gathered papers from the table. This meeting is adjourned. Folders swished closed. People scampered from the room as if they were nine-year-olds chasing an ice cream truck. As the last man reached the door, Ms. Morgan Jones cleared her throat. Jeffrey? The young man flinched at the formality of his name. With one hand clutching a tortured black folder and the other wrapped around the tip of his tie, he turned to face his manager. Y yes, ma'am? She squinted at him with her rouged lips pinched together in a thin line. 
Please close the door behind you. Releasing a stream of captured air, Jeff nodded and stepped into the hall. The door clicked shut and he drooped onto the wall. A hand gripped his arm and began pulling him away from the conference room. Do you believe that, witch? Steve asked, dragging Jeff into the company break room. The refrigerator droned in a corner as a final drip of brew clung to the coffee maker's filter basket. After she delegated all of our parking spots to the handicap last week, she's pulling this stunt. Steve emphasized his words by slamming the cabinet door. I count on that overtime. I hear you, man. My regular paycheck squeaks by to pay the bills, Jeff nodded. Any fun money comes from time and a half. Steve yanked open the icebox and eyed the microwavable dinners and questionable Tupperware. I guess we're going to have to hang out at Starbucks for fun, Jeff said. He leaned back on the counter, supporting himself on his hands. No more paper moon for us. Banging shut the freezer hard enough to send a box of cereal tumbling off the top, Steve whirled to stare at his friend. That's it, he said, pointing a crooked finger at his co-worker. Jeff's brow crumpled in confusion. That's what? I know how to fix this, Steve said. He paced the gold-flecked tiles and mumbled to himself. But how do we make him attack? Steve, you lost me. Jeff crossed his arms across his chest. How do we make who attack? Steve pulled his friends into one of the gray plastic chairs that circled the small lunch table as he sat in another and leaned forward. Gary he whispered. We've got to get Gary. What do we need him for? Jeff snorted a laugh before shaking his head. (laughs) He can't even tie his shoes without permission. Steve's eyebrows arched into his forehead. Don't tell me you forgot what he did to the bouncer last week. Didn't I get so trashed that you had to carry me to the curb? Jeff ran a hand on his face and pulled on his chin. Sorry, I don't remember much from that night except waking up with my head in the toilet. Oh, man. Steve placed a hand on the top of his head and grinned. While you were puking in the gutter, the bouncer was making fun of Gary's haircut. From what I saw, Gary was backing away from the guy and glanced up at the sign. You know, the one with the moon on it? Then he started shaking. Steve motioned Jeff closer before continuing his story. His fingernails turned into claws and his teeth got huge. He illustrated the size with his thumb and forefinger spread apart six inches. His clothes tore and he was all hairy underneath. Dude, what were you on? Jeff asked, raising an eyebrow. I swear on a case of butt I was clean. Steve held up three fingers in good faith. Steve, Jeff said, that's the Girl Scout salute. Boy Scouts use two fingers. Whatever. Steve said, waving his hand as if wiping away his mistake. All I'm saying is Gary turned into a wolf, and I haven't seen that doorman since. What did Gary say about it? Jeff Finger combed his hair and leaned back against the plastic seat. That's the best part. He said he didn't remember anything. One half of Steve's mouth turned up in a grin. He woke up naked on his lawn and figured someone had slipped him a Mickey. I don't buy it. Jeff said, pulling his lips into a thin line. Anyway, how is that supposed to help us with the harpy? Steve's half-grin turned into a beaming smile as he drew closer to his friend. He's got a late meeting with a client tonight. 
I doubt Miss More Than Bone will make him cancel it, since it affects her precious bottom line. His head bobbled as he spoke. I'll reschedule the appointment if you change his screensaver. The look on Jeff's face resembled an average seven-year-old attempting calculus. What am I supposed to change it to, a picture of a better haircut? Steve glanced first over one shoulder, then over the other, before returning his gaze to Jeff. He lowered his voice to a whisper and said, A rising full moon. Jeff's head snapped up and he howled with laughter. After a moment, he dragged the back of his hand across his tearing eyes. So you're telling me, we're going to make Gary wolf out so he'll get rid of our crappy boss? Steve tossed him a solemn nod. All I have to do is change a setting on his computer? Jeff continued. His friend's smile brightened. And what happens when he wakes up naked in the boardroom chewing on a leather pump? Jeff asked. You don't think it'll work? Steve's grin sagged. I think you're nuts. That's what I think. Jeff scratched the back of his neck and stood. But I don't see any harm in messing with a screensaver. The twinkle returned to Steve's eyes. He thrust his sweaty hand forward and grasped Jeff's dry one. I'll take Gary out to lunch so you'll have his desk to yourself. Don't you two have a job to do? Miss Morgan Jones asked from the doorway. The two men flinched and turned toward her voice. Yes, ma'am, they said as one. Then get to it. She disappeared, leaving Steve and Jeff to slink back to their own cubicles. Gary Martin rested his head in his hands. A plastic office chair wobbled underneath his wiry frame. Hey, Gar, Steve said, jostling Gary's elbow and leaning against the desk. Gary raised his head like an inflating balloon. The circles under his yellowish eyes reflected purple in the fluorescent glow. Wow, Steve said. Either you could use a drink or you've already cleaned out the liquor cabinet. Gary placed the heels of his hands on his temples and pressed. I got bit by a dog last month and started having his headaches. He rubbed the sides of his face in a small circular motion. They've been getting worse since that night you guys took me out and got me smashed. Ever think of seeing a doctor? Steve asked. My sister had migraines for years. Gary took a deep breath. If my head doesn't sort itself out soon, I'll make an appointment with her neurologist. A fly buzzed past en route to Gary's garbage can. How about I take you to lunch? Steve crossed his arms across his rumple shirt. There's a new Chinese place down by the pet store. Gary wrinkled his nose as if Steve had suggested eating stewed beets with a side of gizzard. Okay, no Chinese, Steve said. How about Mexican? Gary retched at the thought of beans and cheese. Isn't there some place where we could get steak? Steve patted the patch of stubble on his chin. I think there's a new place a few blocks from here, Steve said, squinting in thought. It's called something like the Wolf's Den. Sounds perfect. Gary stood and smiled, his teeth glinted in the flickering office lights. And don't forget your wallet this time. Patting the back of his pants, Steve felt the bulge of vinyl. As he passed Jeff's desk, he gave a thumbs up and continued to follow Gary's loping gait to the elevator. As they waited, Steve studied Gary's reflection in the metallic doors when they slid closed. 
Weren't his eyes blue? He thought. I could have sworn they were blue. Jeff scrolled through a list of Moonrise screensavers. What if the one he picked wasn't good enough to make Gary turn, if he turned at all? Jeff guessed Steve had done a line of some designer concoction at the club and had imagined the whole long-toothed story. There was a good chance the bouncer had gone to Aruba. A knock sounded on the cubicle wall. Jeff jerked his hands from the keyboard as if he'd been burned by it. He spun in the chair and tried to rise. He froze when he saw Ms. Morgan Jones tapping her foot in the entryway. Mr. Leonard, may I ask what you're doing in Mr. Martin's computer? Jeff's jaw dropped as he tried to form coherent words. I, I, I was walking by and I thought of something I needed to tell Gary about one of the clients. He flashed a slight open-mouthed smile, hoping she believed him. Jeffrey, for a short message to a colleague, a post-it will do. She poked a short stack of yellow squares with a maroon-tipped nail, leaving a slight dent in the top sheet. Leave your note and get back to work. She turned and stalked down the corridor. Jeff slumped his shoulders and returned to his task. And if I catch you attempting to access another employee's computer again, you are fired she called over her shoulder. Jeff yanked his fingers away from the keys as he was about to press as if they were covered in acid. Grabbing a blue pen, he scribbled an indecipherable note and stuck it on the monitor. He blew out a short breath of air as he pushed himself to his feet. The elevator chimed, and Gary poked his head above the cubicle wall to survey the empty office. A man dragging an industrial rubber trash can disappeared inside the car and pressed a button for another floor. Gary dropped back into his chair and stared at the scrawled note he'd moved to the side of his desk. Most of the time, Jeff's handwriting was easy to read, but this disaster of a message was impossible. The only word he could decipher was Jeff's signature at the bottom. Mr. Martin, I'm assuming that since your visitor chairs are empty, your clients have not arrived. Ms. Morgan Jones stood staring at him with a scowling frown. Gary shook his head and shrugged. I verified the meeting yesterday like I always do. They said they'd be here at 5.30. Ms. Morgan Jones thrust her arm forward to raise her jacket sleeve before bending her elbow and bringing her wrist into the line of sight. My watch says 7.15. She lowered her arm and pulled her cuff to match the length of the other. I'm through for the day, but I can't leave you alone in the office. I'm sure they'll be here soon, Gary interrupted, reaching for the phone on his desk. I'll call to check their ETA. Miss Morgan Jones stepped forward and pressed the handset back into its cradle. Are you telling me you haven't called them yet? Gary shook his head. And they haven't called you to say they'll be late? Gary dropped his chin to his chest. You have got to be the most worthless employee I have on the roster, she began. I clear my schedule so you can make one more sale after hours and you can't even get the time straight. Gary lifted his head and watched the woman's arms gyrate in time with her accusations. His eyes wandered to the wall of windows behind her. 
As his manager's voice droned on, the face of the full moon peeked between the buildings across the street. Now the floor is empty. Everyone else has gone home and I'll have to hail my own taxi. Gary felt the stabbing pain bloom in his skull from the dull headache he'd had all day. Pressing his hands to his ears, he squeezed his eyes shut and threw his head from side to side. You listen to me! Miss Morgan Jones shook her index finger at the flailing man before she continued to speak. The pulsing sting between Gary's ears spun down the length of his spine, and he felt the tear in his lower back. He fell to the floor and bristled in agony. The tips of his fingers swelled, and his fingernails tore through his cuticles as they grew. This better not be a grab at the sympathy card, because I don't have one in my deck, sir. Ms. Morgan Jones' eyebrows drew together. As Gary's skin quivered, he began to itch. He scratched at his clothes with his lengthening claws and tore the fabric to ribbons as coarse hair burst from his follicles. He rolled under his desk as his face began to throb. Blood dripped from his bottom lip where Fangs had pushed it aside. If you're going to act like a madman, I'm calling the police. Ms. Morgan Jones backed out of Gary's workspace and skittered toward the stairs. She faltered, hearing a low growl behind her. Her inch-and-a-half heels twisted sideways, and she fell to the carpet in a heap. She scrambled on her hands and knees toward the red exit light. Glancing over her shoulder, she saw a hulking, hairy form pad from the space where she'd left Gary. She rolled to her back and began to crab-crawl toward the door. The monster crouched low. As the woman whimpered and scraped back another foot, the wolf pounced. He landed with one large front paw on either side of her quaking body. He pressed his large wet nose into her hair and inhaled. Please don't hurt me, Miss Morgan Jones whispered. Tears rolled down the side of her face. The wolf rumbled a guttural growl in the woman's ear as he continued to sniff her scent. When he reached her neck, she shrieked. The wolf opened his jaws and snapped her scream in two. Blood jetted in an arc across the wall as the wolf devoured its prey. Shaking his head, the animal tore hunks of flesh from the warm body. Piece by piece, Ms. Morgan Jones disappeared. Steve arrived at work late and sauntered around the office, poking his head into every cubicle under the guise of saying good morning to his co-workers. When he reached Gary's workspace, he found the office chair overturned in a corner. The man's briefcase was leaning against the desk. A few strands of bristled hair were caught in the edge of the partition. At the end of the room, the window of Ms. Morgan Jones' office stared still dark. Hey, buddy, Jeff said, placing a hand on Steve's shoulder. Where's Gary? I don't think he's in yet. Steve rolled the threads of wolf hair between his fingers as he held them up for Jeff to see. A smile burst across his face as he motioned toward the manager's office. Look who else isn't in today. I think our plan worked. Jeff looked down at his loafers. Yeah, about the plan, he said. I never got the screensaver installed. 
The harpy caught me and said I'd be fired if I so much as touched anyone else's computer. You're messing with me, right? Steve pulled his chin and pursed his lips. Jeff met Steve's gaze and frowned. Look for yourself. He swept a hand across the computer. Steve righted the chair with a grunt and sat down in front of the screen. Jeff's scrawled note rolled under his arm and attached itself to Steve's buttoned cuff. Reaching out, Steve wiggled the mouse. Gary's desktop emerged from the blackness. With a few clicks, Steve checked the settings and found Gary's cycling slideshow of teacup chihuahua photos still the chosen screensaver. There wasn't even a moonrise on the menu. Steve twirled to face Jeff. He noticed a wall calendar hanging behind the other man. Standing, Steve pushed his friend out of the way and stared at yesterday's date. A dark circle peeked from the bottom left-hand corner of the box. Steve's mouth went slack as he pointed at the moon symbol. You don't think... Jeff said, peering at the calendar. The two men stood gaping at each other when the elevator bell rang. A tall man with wide shoulders clad in an expensive tailored suit stepped onto the floor. May I have your attention, please? The man said. My name is Devin Declan. He continued to stride toward the closed office door as his voice boomed. I own this company. Ms. Morgan Jones has been relieved of her duties. I will be cleaning up her messes for at least the next six months. Standing in front of the darkened window, the man turned to face the gathering of stunned office workers. Staff meeting in the conference room in ten. He twisted the knob and looked back at the two men in Gary's cubicle. Mr. Martin is taking some comp time and will return in a few days. The latch clicked shut behind their new boss. Everyone has mandatory overtime one night every four weeks. Here's the schedule. Mr. Declan passed a stack of papers to his left and followed it with his eyes as it wound its way around the conference table. Each employee removed one, passed the rest, and scanned their eyes down the document. His head still lowered over the limp sheet he held. Steve raised his hand as if he were controlled by an ancient puppeteer. Mr. Thomas, is it? Mr. Declan asked after running a manicured nail down a block-printed list. Uh, yes... Sir, Thomas, sir. Steve stammered and raised his face to smile. Steve, if you'd like. Mr. Thomas, I assume you were raising your hand for a reason? Mr. Declan lowered a pair of half-moon reading glasses and stared at Steve as he began to roll the edges of his schedule between the tips of his fingers. Um, yes, sir, I was... Steve coughed and slid a finger between his shirt collar and his neck. He snuck a glance at Jeff, who had beads of sweat trickling down the sides of his face. Uh, Are you aware that all the late days you've scheduled coincide with the full moon? Mr. Declan used his index finger to press his glasses back up to the bridge of his nose before he tilted his head and smiled. A canine tooth flashed in the fluorescent light. His yellow eyes glittered from behind the gold half-frames. How nice of you to notice.
where do you think you're going? There's more story to come. <laughs> Don't you want us to keep the lights on? <laughs> And finally, <laughs> um, yeah, Carrie Lip's story, the one that Nelson W. Piles decided to end his Wicked Library career on, episode number 520 of the Wicked Library, the one that got rejected. <laughs> oh, <laughs> all right. Carrie Lip brings you... Ooh. What if Jesus was a werewolf? Enjoy or skip it. Up to you. I recommend enjoy, but you know, it all depends upon your religious views as to whether or not this is going to be in your wheelhouse. Kidding aside, this is a great, fantastic story by the great and creative Carrie Lip. What if Jesus was a werewolf? Judas sat in the candlelit room clutching a dagger in one hand and a slingshot in the other. He hadn't slept for a couple days, save for sneaking a nap here and there when he just couldn't keep his eyes open any longer. They were fitful, the naps of a cat, and he always jolted himself awake almost as soon as his head nodded down. He was scared, but he knew it would be over soon. He just hoped that no one, not Jesus or anyone else, would come for him. But if they did, with dagger and slingshot, he was prepared. His door burst open. One of his friends, Micah, entered. Is it done? Judas asked. Not yet, sir. He must be a tough one. So why are you here? Judas asked. He told them that he didn't wish to be disturbed unless there was significant news. Sorry to disturb you, sir, but night is beginning to fall and the moon is looking awful big. Thank you, Micah, Judas said. Please keep watching and tell the men to be on their guard. What are you expecting, sir? Micah asked. I don't know. Probably nothing. Judas said, but I won't be a rest until Christ is dead. I see, Micah said and lowered his eyes. He left. As the door closed, Judas could see dusk settling in and a big piece of pale moon cut off by the doorframe. Judas clutched the dagger tighter, checked to make sure there were no flaws in the slingshot, stretching the durability of the bands. He double-checked his ammunition and sat with his back to the wall and his face to the door. Judas knew it couldn't be much longer, but until it was all over, he would not be at peace. He waited. Jesus heaved his body while his burning lungs fought for breath as the sun began to set on yet another day with him nailed to the cross. He looked down at the people below him with no more tears to cry. He'd grown numb to just about everything over the passing days. 
the pain from the spikes driven through his ankles and wrists no longer registered. The thorns from his crown still cut into his head every time he blinked or raised himself on those impaling spikes to suck in just one more breath. He imagined the pointed thorns had to be scraping bone by now, but he didn't know for sure. The blood had mostly dried and scabbed, and with the scabs, the sweat, and the blistering sunburns, he itched more than he felt pain. But with all of his limbs still firmly embedded in those thick, crossed beams, he had nothing to scratch with. Bugs flew at his festering skin, oozing wounds and cracking scabs, their buzzing and nibbling only increasing the unscratchable itches. There were some other men being crucified around him. Some were still alive and writhing, but Jesus knew he was in the best shape of them all. One near him had died in the last few hours. Jesus watched as a crow flew down and started eating his face. Jesus itched so bad that he thought about playing dead just to fool the crow into scratching his face with its beak while it picked bits of meat from his countenance. The lashes and the back pain he'd obtained in the pre-crucifixion ritual were scabbed and faded, and all that remained was the itch. The itch from the alternating healing and reopening wounds. But even stronger was his growing itch for revenge. The only reason he fought to stay alive this long was because he knew there was a full moon coming. Even up here, nailed down and near dead, a full moon would save him, heal him, and put him in a perfect position for vengeance. He warred for another breath and listened to the shouts of the mob gathered below him. Just like any other lynch mob, they started out dedicated and passionate, and as time went on, even though it was only a couple of days, their screams faded. His accusers went home, and the executioners took naps. Jesus stayed awake the entire time, planning, plotting, seeing how they acted, where they went and studied their habits, just in case he got his chance. He didn't know if he would, but if he did, he wouldn't waste it. The way he saw it, no one out there, at least not many, were innocent. They were all guilty as sin itself, with Judas the guiltiest. What Jesus wouldn't give to get Judas alone. He couldn't believe the betrayal. Couldn't imagine what Judas stood to gain for selling him out. But it didn't really matter anymore. All that mattered was surviving until that moon hit full, and he could take charge and have his revenge. As the sun dipped, the heat dwindled and the sky darkened. Jesus saw the faintest hint of the moon and knew it would rise high and full shortly. Despite the itch, not the pain, and truly because of the itch, he stretched his body for breath, felt his healing flesh tear open yet again, but somehow, and even though it cracked his lips, Jesus found the strength to smile. To keep himself awake, Jesus counted the men and women and children surrounding him, their ages and sexes not mattering. All were merely persecutors, 
obstacles on his path to Judas. People that put him on the cross and stood in front of the mastermind. Some of them were screaming again, and Jesus heard the familiar taunts. Heretic! Blasphemer! Die! As if they were so much better than he. While they chanted, continued the mantra, and spat terrible things, the worst of the persecutors got the whips out yet again. They shouted while they flicked their whips, shooting them out all over his body. But Jesus was thankful for the assault. Even though they cut deep and tore at his skin, the lashes scratched the itches that assaulted his body. He'd grown indifferent to pain. But the itch... Those bullwhips and cat-o'-nine-tails couldn't touch that itch for revenge, even as they ripped at his body. The slicing through flesh, turning the bottoms of his feet into dripping red wounds. And that itch started to flame white-hot while the sun descended. Jesus embraced it as they continued their hateful chanting and the moon continued to rise. For a few moments he thought he might pass out or bleed to death, but he fought for breath and studied the people, and for the final time took stock of where they were, how many there were, what they were armed with, and what they were doing. He saw a heavily muscled man moving closer and brandishing a spear. Jesus looked at the moon, trying to calculate how much time he had left. The man approached the hill, screaming, and the full moon rose slowly. The man ran, and soon he was under Jesus, shouting filthy insults and sharpening the tip in front of the crowd. Jesus smirked at the man's arrogance. The man continued his soliloquy while he made a show of sharpening his spear in front of the crowd. The man shaved that point razor sharp while others continued to whip Jesus. Another crucifixion victim died, and a crowd of people cheered. Most importantly, Jesus continued to breathe and focus. The moon ascended. It wasn't quite in place yet when the man raised the spear. Jesus thought about how hard he'd fought, the pain, the awful itching, and couldn't believe that he wasn't going to last until he'd be able to change. He yelled and shouted and tried to distract the spear-wielding, muscled man, but it didn't work. The man gripped the spear. The moon taunted. The man cocked the spear to strike, to expedite the crucifixion. The man pulled back, and despite pushing to change with all his might, and even with the moon so almost there, Jesus couldn't change. The man thrust the spear with that sharpened point right at Jesus' guts. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. And then time stopped. Jesus heard the voice, the voice of his father speaking to him from the gigantic white full moon illuminating the dark sky. You're right, son. They don't. But I think you know what to do. His father, God, was right. 
Jesus knew exactly what to do. Time started. In the half second between the man's wind-up and spear thrust, Jesus transformed. His teeth sharpened and his lips spread. Fur sprouted all over his body and his muscles tripled in size. His tendons and ligaments growing longer and tighter, adding agility to his strength. His wounds healed immediately. His left hand ripped free from the spike and healed by the time it returned to his torso. It gave Jesus a split second to dodge the spear tip, which embedded in the wooden cross and barely missed piercing Jesus' flesh. People screamed in horror and disbelief. The frightened crowd grew even more hostile. They'd never seen anything like this before, and it scared them. The ones with whips lashed harder, but any strength the blows may have delivered were absorbed by Jesus' thick fur. It covered his entire body. Jesus ripped his other hand free and knowing his feet were still pinned, let his body spin upside down. He looked like a fool swinging down like that, and the men charged with swords and daggers drawn. But Jesus had baited them, and just as the front runners were about to slash, he kicked out his legs, ripping them through the spike, and like an acrobat, flipped back behind them. His feet were healed before he hit the ground. In his gymnastic expertise, he'd also liberated the sharp spear from the wooden cross. He twirled it in his hand when his tormentors turned to look. Jesus spun it once more, smirking to himself, knowing that he didn't even need it. He drew it back and launched it like a javelin at the man who'd tried to stick him, and it went straight through the man's face and out the back of his head, pinned him to the cross from the neck up. The muscled man's body clenched, then went limp, then just hung there. The other men gasped, discarded their whips, and drew their swords. They swarmed. With lightning speed, unholy strength, razor claws, a mouthful of pointy teeth, and a three-day empty belly, Jesus went berserk on all those in the close vicinity, and based on no characteristics did Jesus discriminate. He just killed everything. He turned them all into a blood cloud under a minute and they never struck a blow. Starving and thirsty, he killed them all with his mouth open, eating their meat and drinking their blood, feeding on it all the while he continued to kill. The moon coupled with the human nourishment made Jesus grow even stronger. His vision sharpened along with his claws, and even though he inherently knew Judas hid a few miles away, Jesus could smell him could track him, and as soon as Jesus caught scent of that, he took off running and destroyed everyone in his path on his way down the hill. He decapitated the foolish few in his way so quick and so clean that the heads landed face down to drown in puddles of their own spilling blood. He moved like a stealthy lightning and slashed throats and ate faces or worse of everyone on his way into town. Grass died and stones shattered under his muscled feet while he hunted Judas. He half expected his father, God, everyone called him, to pause time again. 
Thanks for that chance, Dad. They called him the heretic, and he didn't know what else to call them besides the enemy. But Jesus loved the taste of their blood on his talons. He licked them clean with narrowed, feral eyes, searching for more prey as he stalked in the town. The further he ventured, the more innocent he figured the people to be. Sure, they might have been in favor of his death, but Jesus was much more likely to forgive and forget if they weren't screaming at him or lashing him with leather. Townspeople ran from him and Jesus didn't chase. With his immediate thirst for nourishment and vengeance served, he could focus on finding Judas and finally scratch that ultimate itch. He picked up the scent again and sprinted toward it. The scent was strong and though still vigilant, and when he could pinpoint its origin, Jesus shifted from ferocity to stealth. Several armed men surrounded Judas's lair. They carried bows, axes, spears, nasty weapons to use on a man. But under that white, pretty moon, none of those items would deal enough damage to dissuade werewolf Jesus. Judas's guards must have heard the screaming and the chaos because they were anxious and twitching. Six men patrolled the house. Jesus slaughtered them all in seconds. None of them saw him coming and died before they hit the ground. Jesus regretted that. They deserved a whole lot worse than instant death. He hoped that whole hell thing his dad was into was for real. When all of Judas's guards lay on the periphery of the house in pieces and puddles, Jesus put a powerful foot through Judas's thick wooden front door. Jesus stared at Judas through the archway, and it was just the two of them. Judas didn't move. He just smirked. He sat behind his table and sipped his wine. Jesus wanted to dash at him, fast as he had everyone else, but once he stepped inside, the lack of moonlight kicked in. A certain percentage of his muscle, fur armor, and confidence rescinded with the lack of good moonlight, but he tried to hide it. Now, more man than beast, Jesus looked at Judas, who set aside his wine cup in favor of a slingshot. Jesus saw a dagger glinting bright in the candlelight laying on his lap as well. I heard all the screams. I thought that it might be you, Judas said. Jesus took another step in and snarled. But Judas saw Jesus' werewolf power waning and showed no fear. Why did you sell me out, Judas? I thought we were closer than that, like brothers. You thought wrong, Judas said, nonchalant and grabbing a small purse from the table beside him. Why? After all we've done, all we've been through, why would you do such a thing? First of all, Judas said, to have you dead. But I'm still here. You can't kill me, Jesus said. Second, Judas ignored him, is for 30 pieces of silver. Judas began moving his hands into the purse. Money? You did it for money? And for such little. My life for 30 pieces of silver. I cannot fathom your greed. Jesus shot back. 
Judas just laughed and pulled a piece of silver out of his purse. Stupid fool, Judas said. It's not about money. Never was. Jesus looked confused. My 30 pieces of silver were insurance. I wanted you dead and wasn't sure the mob could get the job done. <laughs> I was right. I can't believe those fools. They didn't get the job done and they all got themselves killed. Judas laughed. Insurance, Jesus asked. Yeah, Judas said. Just in case those idiots ran into a full moon and couldn't finish it, he said and raised the slingshot. And then Jesus got it. But maybe I am greedy or maybe just confident because this is my last piece. I've already used the rest, but I promise for good reason. For things I needed. You'll see. Maybe you'll even understand. I hope I don't miss. Judas let fly and didn't miss. And the piece of silver hit Jesus in the eye and started burning. Jesus screamed. And then everything went white, and then red, and then black. Jesus woke to a deluge of cold water dumped on his face. Bright sunlight burned his one good eye, and the other one hurt like hell. As he rolled and struggled to his feet, he felt the whips lashing his skin, and in the heat of the day his only armor was the same skin that covered all men, shredded easily by whips and stones and cat-o'-nine-tails. He started screaming, hopeless. He tried to roll away, and in his good eye, Judas stepped into view, standing tall, standing arrogant, and carrying a satchel. Sorry to do this, friend, but I've talked to your father. He figured you'd fight. He even said he might help you, but in the end, this is the way your story has to go. You, the martyr, and me, the villain, and who the hell knows about your father. We'll try and keep the last part out, you know, the part about you slaughtering an entire village. I'm sorry, my friend. Jesus tried to speak, but his mouth was too dry, his body too weak to fight, his eye hurt. Seize him, Judas commanded, and the men surrounding the scene grabbed Jesus, carried him to a new cross, and held him down. I told you I used my thirty pieces of silver, Judas said, but I didn't spend them. Judas opened the satchel and pulled out three sharp crucifixion spikes made of bright, gleaming silver. The men held Jesus' arms and legs while Judas drove the spikes through his wrists and then his feet. Jesus shrieked in a pain that dwarfed everything he'd felt before. Faint smoke drifted up from the punctures as the silver scorched his delicate human flesh. Can't forget this, Judas said. We dipped the crown of thorns in silver, Judas said, and jammed it on top of Jesus' head. Jesus howled. More smoke billowed and blood flowed into his eyes. Please, stop this, Jesus said. Judas punched him in the mouth. Jesus spat blood, felt a few teeth crack. Raise him up, 
Judas said, and the men did. And once again Jesus was crucified in front of a live audience. And he was still in too much pain to feel any kind of itch. This time, he just wanted it to be over. I had one more thing made from my silver pieces, Judas yelled up. Jesus was beyond caring. I thought we'd make this go a little faster and a little safer this time, Judas said and returned with a spear. Jesus just screamed and heaved for breath in the hot sun. It's got a silver point on it, Judas said. You can call this murder, but I'm going to call it mercy. You got a problem with that, talk to your father. I think you'll be seeing him soon. Like before with the muscled man, Judas pulled the spear back to strike. Jesus said, Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Forgive me, son, for I told them, and they know exactly what they do. God answered, Jesus wept. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com If you enjoyed the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, and for $5 a month and above, you get bonus stories and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. Season 7 of the Wicked Library is sponsored in part by the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. You can find them over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. And of course, in iTunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Also sponsored in part by Zombie Lips. They make the antidote for the human condition. Get the cure at zombielips.squarespace.com. Complete credits and show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links on our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead. Leave the lights on. All the better to eat you with, little pig. <laughs>